Jesus Christ, his cross, the wisdom of God. I'm going to make a guess, but you can tell me if I'm right. Uh, I think that in my experience, the older I get, I don't reach a limit on wisdom. I'm always seeking more, always desiring more. But, you know, you're, some of you are ahead of me. So you, you tell me, is that fair? <laughs> is, that a, is that a fair guess? Yeah, I thought so. Um, each one of us in this room uh, has some question, some challenge, some problem, a decision to make. You make enough decisions in life and you realize they have consequences. Some of those consequences stay. So you start craving wisdom. How do I, how do I make this choice? Because of course, wisdom is what helps you decide between, you know, choice A, choice B when the rules don't apply. Does that make sense? So sometimes you know the rules, right? Years ago when I was, uh, in school for music, I was studying classical guitar. There was my arpeggios. There was what I had to do. I didn't have, you know, how do I do this thing? Well, you have to have the right technique and then you do it. It's on paper. My instructor would show me. That's one. But other questions like, well, what school should I go to? What career should I take? Or what person should I marry and devote my life to? There's no clear answer. What you need is wisdom. And it doesn't stop when you're you know, that young adult phase, it just goes through your life. We're often confronted with challenges and questions, quandaries. We need to make a choice. And so today, when we're hearing St. Paul discuss the wisdom of God, we're being given the insight of how the follower of Christ, the Christian, really the human being, goes about making choices with divine wisdom. Because, of course, what God chooses is always right. Wouldn't it be great if we also chose in the way of God? Wouldn't that improve our lives, make a, a better world? The Sunday school answer is yes. Yes, it would. All right, so what is the Bible saying? What is St. Paul sharing to this church? It's important to understand the context because what we're hearing is St. Paul's letter to a, a particular church, a church in Corinth, right? And so this is the Corinthian church. Well, the city of Corinth is the center of, it's a metropolitan city. It's at the center of high learning and also high pleasure and debauchery. It has a, a bit of everything. And this baby church is caught in the middle of the city and this church, Paul is writing because they have all kinds of division, all kinds of strife, bad habits, sinful habits, and it's tearing them apart. So St. Paul is writing a letter. I don't think he knew he was writing part of the Bible. He was just writing. Like every week I write a newsletter, a newsletter note. It boggles the mind to think that 2,000 years later someone's going to be reading that. But that's what Paul is doing. He's like a pastor. He's, he's writing down. He's an apostle. Hey, there's a problem. I'm sending these to you. And he started, before he deals with all the, the, the challenges, the divisiveness, the questions that they have, the whole letter is going to deal with it. He starts by saying, we need this wisdom to go forward. Now, what is it? Well, it's the cross of Jesus. 
So what does that mean? Notice that when he talks about the cross, he does a contrast, he does a comparison between the wisdom of God and human wisdom, right? They're, they're, they're compared, they're not identical. Paul is saying there's this human way you can go about living your life, not only individual life, but the life of your community. There's a, a human way of doing it. There's also this godly, divine way. And you have to be aware of that. And he talks about two human ways. He talks about uh, the ancient Jewish understanding, also the ancient Greek. And he's contrasting them. And he says, Jesus is a stumbling block to this way of thinking, this human way. A stumbling block. You know what that means? Paul is saying off the bat that the wisdom of God is something that you, there's a chance, a high chance, you're going to trip on. Already. There's the warning side, right? Just so you know, as we explore the wisdom of God, you may trip on it. Right? It's going to get in your way. I.e., you're not going to like it. You're going to trip. Be warned. Look what happened to these two ways, two ways of thinking. He talks about the Jewish way. Of course, we know that our Savior Jesus was born and raised in the ancient Jewish community. He was a Jewish teacher. And he came to his people. And some trusted in him, many did not. And the reason why many didn't is because they had a way of seeing the world that was fixed and could not, would not allow what Jesus was bringing to the table. Because Jesus is saying, hey, you need help connecting with God. You can't do it on your own. I'm God. Come to you. Right? Many times in the Gospels when we read it, people end up worshiping Jesus. He doesn't say, whoa, whoa, stop, get up. No, he, he stands there. He receives it. Yes, only God is worthy of worship. You're worshiping me? Good. That is what you should be doing. Because I'm God. And then he was arrested illegally by the Roman government. And then he was lynched. He was killed on a tree. And the Jewish mind couldn't accept that. Because if Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior of his people, he couldn't die cursed on a tree. That was in their scriptures. It wasn't going to fit. The math didn't add up. And so what they believed, the you want to call the foundational aspects of their, of their mind, how they understood the world, could not admit Jesus. And they weren't willing to question that. And therefore, Jesus just bounced off of them. They couldn't accept. They stumbled on Jesus. They were so fixed on what they believed. Same with the ancient Greeks. They weren't thinking like the ancient Jews. They had a different way of thinking. Ancient Jews wanted signs from Jesus. Show us that you're the Messiah. I don't care about thinking too much. Just make a sign. Do a miracle. Prove it to me. The Greeks weren't asking for that necessarily. They were saying, wait a minute. We have high learning. We have Greek philosophy. Top tier minds. We can do conceptual analysis. And we thought about this. In fact, for us, we don't need some tomes from a desert god. We've thought our way to a prime mover. Yeah, yeah, there's a pantheon of gods, but really that's all kind of bogus. If you think critically, you can come to the realization logically that there must be one primeval force that started everything. All right? Well, that sounds like God, doesn't it? One primeval force that gets the ball rolling, but this force 
given the way the world's arranged, isn't really interested in us. In fact, a defining conceptual feature of this prime mover would be the Greek uh, concept of apatheia. You know, we get our word apathetic. In other words, this prime mover, this, this force, isn't interested in you and your ups and downs. Isn't interested in your narrative, your life. It's just a powerful force that gets the universe going. And so when the first Christians came around to the Greeks saying, actually, this force you talk about is a personal God. And this God has come to us in Jesus and is infinitely interested in who you are and loves you. The Greek mind, the ancient Greek mind, couldn't accept that. The prime force is a force. It's not a person. How could that relate? This is absurd. It's illogical. And so the reality of Jesus bounced off that way of thinking. It was a stumbling block. Maybe you see where I'm going with this. Okay, we're not ancient uh, we're not ancient Jews. We're not ancient Greeks. But I promise you, we also have a fixed way of thinking. We do. And it's human, which means by its nature, it rebuffs the divine voice. We have all kinds of assumptions in our culture. All kinds. Some of the most natural, I think, in our world is, well, I, I only believe what science proves to me. Right? Well, I'll only accept it if it's rational. The thing is, you can poke holes into that way of thinking quite easily, actually. Can I just give you one? Just, just for fun here. Some of you had breakfast this morning. Do you remember what you had? Right? Yeah. Maybe you had breakfast a year ago today. Do you think you had breakfast one year ago today? Yeah, yeah. Maybe you remember it. Maybe it was a really good one. Yeah. Go ahead, prove it. Prove that a year ago you had breakfast a year ago today. Well, I have a memory, Seth. Okay. Pull out that memory from your brain and show it for all of us to see. Can you do that? The answer is no. I was seven years old when I learned how to ride a bike. One afternoon. Pedaling. I remember that I learned how to bike ride really fast, and then I didn't learn how to brake, and so I crashed into my dad's car. Oh, I got a, I got a discipline that day. I remember that. I, I can't prove it to you. Not empirically. You're gonna have to trust me. I trust my memories, and you have to trust me. And you know what? I do that. No one's saying, "Well, that's kind of irrational." No, can't prove it empirically, but we're rational to believe it. Do you see? Yet, our culture says things like, well, only if it's empirically proven, I'm not going to believe that. Right? Or we believe things like, well, okay, maybe there is some kind of divine, you know, what you call God, something beyond my science. But all these religions in, in, in this earth, so many perspectives, they're probably all right. which is another way of saying they're all equally wrong. Boop. Right? Because when you read Jesus, he never says that. And Jesus was being foisted onto that cross and he's speaking forgiveness. 
You don't hear him say, eh, I'm dying on this cross. It's extremely painful spiritually and physically, but also that other way is fine too. Me or that, same thing. Believe you me, he does not say that. But we believe that. And I can list many more. But what they all had in common, or wait, the, sci- the scientific perspective, not science, scientism is different. Science by faith, or maybe a kind of pluralism, or any other uh, aspect of a culture that bounces Jesus, all those, what they all had in common at the bottom is our insistence that we are in control. Because if I can explain, explain it scientifically, then I'm in control. Or if all religions are right, then all my decisions end up being right anyways. I've controlled my destiny. I can't be wrong. They're all right. I use like theological judo, <laughs> judo to be right. That's not, that's just control. And so Paul says, here are these human ways of thinking. He could say, hey, here are those human uh, attempts at control. And then there's the cross of Jesus. And the cross is directly opposed to control. The cross is the, the creator, the most important, powerful being coming to us in extreme vulnerability. God comes to us as a baby. And he grows up at the midst of a conquered people. Marginalized, a nobody, a son of a carpenter, a very poor family, whose three years of ministry are are done in like the area of Galilee, which is kind of like I, I don't know around in Alberta. Think of the most hick town you could think of, and that's what he was doing. All right, and then he gets arrested, and he's and he's murdered. And that's the God we follow, Jesus. He doesn't come in power and control. He comes vulnerable. And he says the wisdom of God for you, if you want to live a life aligned with divine wisdom, is going to be a life of not of chronic attempts at control, vulnerability. Right? Not trying to explain everything. Love. And not just love that blanketly affirms whatever someone chooses. I mean, love the way that God talks about it. And the Bible is very clear what love is. If you're curious, you can look it up. First John chapter four. The question is, what is love? And the answer is given. Love is Jesus Christ, the son of God, come to us, crucified as an atonement for our sins. Atonement for our sins. That's what love is. Jesus dying on the cross. So notice what the reading says. You can look it up if you have any bulletins or maybe online. The crucial verses that you're going to look at are going to be verses 21 and verse 30, when Paul talks about the wisdom of God. We think of wisdom as a kind of technique, right? I have some choices to make. What's the right technique? What's the right way that can help me choose this? We're looking for something, a science that can help me understand what choice do I make. But notice that when Paul talks about wisdom, the divine wisdom, it's an action. And not a human action, it's a divine action the saving action of God for humanity, Jesus on the cross. Which means 
But all of us here, me included, all humans, bounced from the center of the wisdom. Wisdom isn't, in the end, primarily with something we can achieve or we can do. Wisdom is God's action for us. Because it's the cross. It's God's gift. But do you know what kind of gift it is? Well, it's a problematic gift, I'll tell you that. We just had the Christmas season, right? I have young kids. Adding to it in March, we're going to have a third. So, you know, a lot of planning, asking, hey, what do you want? What are you looking for? Got to think of the in-laws, family. Oh, man. Got to figure it out. But imagine I didn't ask. Imagine I went to my, I uh, some family member. My wife, let's do that. You guys know her. And I gifted her a collection of uh, bars of soap. Just put that in her stocking some deodorant. And she opens those. What do you think is going to happen? She didn't ask her. I'm just giving her soap. Well, she has a decision to make, right? Because if she says, oh, wow, thank you. She's probably admitting a lot of things. She's admitting, uh, I'm smelly. I stink. I don't use enough of these. I don't know what it's trying to get across because the gift implies something, right? Here's some mouthwash. So if she accepts it, she, in fact, what she's saying is, yes, I do need these things because i got to figure out my life. Which, of course, would be kind of, she thought about it, it'd be hurtful. And I'm not giving her that gift, but you see what I'm saying? Gifts imply something. So if God gives us a gift of wisdom, and the gift of wisdom is Jesus Christ on the cross, what is that saying about us? There are words that we have in the Bible, such as sin. Separation from God. A condition that's as much moral as it is existential, ontological, if you want to say. That's in the very being of being human that divorces us from God, which is a dangerous place to be. Because if God is a source of life and love and we're divorced from that, what does that say about us? What it says about us is the entire history of the human race. War and misery, loneliness, alienation. Hurt. So God says, I'm going to give you what you need. It's more than a bar of soap. It's the Son of God come to die for us. Somehow that, in that death, in a mystical way that I can't fully explain right now, the time that I have left, that beautiful sacrificial act on the part of God, that he didn't have to die. Perfect. Only human to her be perfect. Gives his life for each one of us and says, because of what I'm doing right now, you now have a chance to connect with God. All you have to do is trust me. Believe in me. Live your life in the light of who I am, what I've done for you. That's it. You don't have to go on a cross. Just trust me. That's the wisdom. See, prior to any question that we may have in our lives, what we, what we have to do, what we have to achieve, we're in that crucial moment of choice. Prior to making a decision, it matters where you start from, right? Because if you start, for example, from a place of fear and anxiety, 
you're going to be hard pressed with the right choice. Fear only begets more fear, begets more fear, right? You know that. You start from anxiety, where, where are you going to land? No matter what you land on, you're going to end up anxious because anxiety, fear, those are states of, that's how you live, right? If you have a busy life, I don't care how much you meditate, you're busy while you're meditating. Business doesn't stop with the right action. It's a state of existence. So if you start with the truth that God loves you, God's in your corner, he's cheering for you. He loves you so much that he's died for you so that no matter what you're facing, he's done the hardest thing. And therefore, you can trust this person. That is the strongest place that any human could ever start from for any question, any challenge. When the hardest question has been answered and settled, everything else yeah, it's going to be hard. But it doesn't have the last word in who you are. Right? That's peace. That's the source of joy. Joy not being happiness. I mean, joy, that thing that carries you through when you're suffering. But I suppose it does have a price. Subjective price, not the price God paid on the cross, but here's the price. We sang a song uh, during Advent. You may recall it. I have a little guitar. It's a new one for us. And one of the lyrics went, He comes, but not to the wise and great, but to the bound and poor. So low himself that potentates must kneel to find the door. I suppose if you want to say the price, the price tag is humility. Because it doesn't feel good to say, I'm a sinner in need of grace. It doesn't feel good. Because I say that, I'm admitting the moral situation that I'm in, my complicity and the brokenness of this world and in my life, right? That each choice that I make has moral valence. And sometimes, and not often, I've chosen, not by accident, but willingly chosen what's wrong, to hurt the other, to be selfish, to argue for what I want at the expense of the peace of another. So to say, I'm a sinner, is to admit all that. The whole tapestry of the brokenness of humanity, I'm part of that. And that hurts. It hurts my ego. And so narratives of control are way more attractive. You're right. They are more attractive. But they're not honest. Because if I had to be honest, I know I got the little collar and the little thing right here, but if I'm honest, then I'm as broken as any one of you. If not more, because I probably know more, and therefore when I do something, I, I do it more willingly. I don't know. That's for God to decide. But the point is, I don't stand here as a paragon of you know, perfect morality. I'm standing here as a brother to you, saying that it hurts to say, yeah, I need help. That often the mistakes that I make are willingly. And the problems that I find myself in, I dug the hole. And if I had to account for my life right now, if I had to stand before God and account for my life, I'd be really scared. And what's scary is that each one of us would feel the same way. For the whole world, we're caught in this net. But 
it is humility for us to then say, that is the truth. And we need help. And the help doesn't come in some science or some philosophy, it comes. You know, baby born 2,000 years ago in ancient Palestine who then grew up to live the life that I should have lived, then died the death that I should have died, and that if I trust in him in a way that I can't even, it's incredible, I'm made right, right with God and everything's okay. And I have access to his life, to his love, to his wisdom. I'm transformed into the kind of person that can make wise choices. Not because I accrued more science, but because I had the things of God in my heart, in my mind. And suddenly I can do the things that right now are so costly because now with Jesus in my life, you know what I can do? I can forgive. I don't have to live trapped in narratives of anger because people have hurt me. I can forgive. I can love. Not the kind of love that's laced with my self-centered, self-serving motives. I can love. Just love you for who you are. And as I'm forgiving, and as I'm loving, I'm also recognizing that these are gifts from God. And therefore, I can also say, not cheaply as I open a little hymn, but I can actually say, Lord, thank you. This is your doing. This is not me. This is your gift. I live in your light, your wisdom. Thank you. And then that shapes your life, a life of gratitude. And suddenly, when you have that life of gratitude, of love, of forgiveness, the problems that you and I have right now, I have questions, you have questions too. They still remain questions, but they're not live or die anymore. They're just the next step. Wouldn't it be great if we could live that way? Wouldn't that be great? I can't answer that for you. I hope it is. I know for me it is great. I'm preaching to you, but I'm preaching to myself. I have questions, but now it's for you. Wisdom, human wisdom, the wisdom of God. Control, a narrative control, you don't have to change, just learn more science. The wisdom of God is in humility, come and say, yeah, I need help. Jesus, I need help. And the moment you say that, it's there. God, forgive me for who I've been. Forgive me for who I am. Help me. I need help. Right there. I've already done it for you. It's already yours. Here's the gift. Live your life in love and peace. The gift is there for the taking, my friends. I hope that you hope that you receive it. We'll be going to the Lord's table in a few, a few minutes. Hold what we've shared this, this moment. Hold it in your prayer. Pray as you come to receive the elements. Ask God, I want your wisdom. Give me your love and your peace. I don't deserve it. Can I receive it in the name of Jesus? And the answer will always be yes. I hope that you ask that of God. I hope that you come to him. Amen.